All right, man. I want to wish everyone a happy holiday season and a happy, healthy, and higher-minded end of their year. This will be a free episode for the holidays. It'll probably be labeled 191.5. The entire episode will go out free to everybody on YouTube, everywhere else. It covers some more natural ideas, and we'll be moving along. I know a lot of people had trouble with the box saga. I expected they would, unless I put it on the record. I think that's information that will be censored right off everywhere before long. But moving along, we're going to get right back to where we ever were. And uh, we've got a really special one to open up the new year. And we've got a couple good ones before we get there. But this one is a freebie to everybody. And I hope they enjoy it. It's about understanding that there's so much just right out your back door that in a pinch you could use as food and much of it very healthy. There it is, man. And again, happy holidays to everyone. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. Today, Jason Lingren is with me and Simon from the Great White North. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, plants, basically, but not just any old plants. Most people are unaware that almost anywhere you live, there are uh, plants that you can go out in nature and harvest and eat or consume in some way. And that's what we're going to be uh, addressing here today. Welcome, Jason. Good morning, Crow. So how's it, man? We had our first snow yesterday. It was all gone by the time I woke up, but I'm told Boston's supposed to get a foot tonight, so we will see. Well, that's a shame. I'm kind of cold. It's like 55 here. Yeah, I'm kind of in a magic zone. We're so close to the coast, sometimes it misses us, sometimes it doesn't. But do we have anything for the intro here? No, we don't. All right, man. Uh, Welcome, Simon. Good morning, guys. You're up in the Great White North. I'm reasonably sure you've been seeing snow for a while. Oh, well, I'm not that far up. But uh, we had a good snow, and then it got warm, and now we have a little more snow. All right. Um, Anything you want to introduce before we get into the main topic here? It's an interesting topic, and I hope people take it to heart. And I'll preface what we're going to talk about. There are still places in the United States where people go out and harvest actually plants out of a field that they did not cultivate that are growing in nature. One of the examples I can cite is when my wife and I stopped to see uh, people in Arkansas, we went out to the pastures where the livestock are and we harvested a weed, I think it's called poke. It goes into a poke salad and we consume that. And let me tell you something, you can tell the difference. If you just go get lettuce or something to make your salad from a store, um, it's night and day compared to what you pull out of nature. Um, but where would you like to start here, Simon? Well, uh, uh, let's start at the top of the list here. Um, like you say, they're not just any plants. Really what I'm talking about specifically more so are the weeds, you know? And so what's a weed, right? Why do we call it a weed? When you think of weed, what do you think of? Well, you think of a pest almost, right? You think of this thing that aggravates you and that you don't like and you want to get rid of. It's got a very negative connotation. 
super negative connotation, right? And and for what reason, right? Well, because of the Bible there, right? That's the whole story of Cain. Um, Now we're throwing you out of this great place and you're going to have to scrounge for it and weeds are going to choke what you try to cultivate. I think that's the earliest mention, but go ahead. Sure, right? And, uh, you know, and now we and now there's all kinds of things you can buy that Monsanto makes that, um, you know, you can spray all over the place and they'll kill your weeds for you. But obviously, you know, here's what I'm bringing forth is that's a ridiculous mindset. And what I'm trying to say is we're switching the mindset on these plants. And so again, weeds, just, uh, you know, a programming term really, as far as I can tell, uh, just to get you worked up and to get you angry about something and get you to buy something to spray on it. And so what I'm saying is all these plants, they live or they grow all around us and they're super useful. So like they're, they're food and medicine. And so a lot of these plants, it's like, it's like a scale. There's food and medicine, you know, let food be thy medicine or something like that. Right. And so is it, are they food or are they medicine? Well, they're not either or, right. It's a sliding scale. In my opinion, you could say, super medicinal plant on one side, super nutritive, more like food on the other side. And somewhere on this sliding scale, all these plants are right. And so depending on, you know, is the taste like milder and, you know, can you eat more of it and has more nutrition? Well, then it's more of a food and, you know, you would consume a whole bunch of it. Think of like spinach, right? Not a whole lot going on there in terms of taste, but you could eat a lot of it. Very nutritious. It'll keep you going, right? But then on the other end of the scale, you know, super medicinal. Well, think about like cayenne pepper, right? Here's this like super spicy, really intense thing that you couldn't possibly eat a lot of, but it's obviously very powerful and has a lot of medicinal properties, right? And at the same time, you know, you're getting some sort of nutrition out of it, but you eat such a little bit that it's super medicinal. And so all these different plants are growing around us. And these ones that I'm talking about, I mean, dandelion's the classic the classic example to begin with it's easy everybody it basically grows everywhere you know almost and um everyone can identify it and you know most people in the general world have a real hate on for this plant and it really really makes no sense right other than the programming because you know ultimately the whole plant you can eat it you you know the whole thing at all times of the year the leaf the flower then the root And so depending on what time of the year it is, you know, all these things, again, tie back to the sky clock kind of a thing, right? What time of year is it? What can you harvest? You know, so early spring, you know, you're going to get out your little fresh dandelion spring greens. They're going to be super nice and super tender, super delicious. Then, you know, through the summer, you can pick more greens and things and the flowers will come out. And, you know, then the energy dies back and goes into the roots in the fall. And now you can dig out your dandelion roots and do all kinds of things with these, right? So, yeah, I mean, that's just it. Just to get us started, I mean, all these plants, there's a whole bunch of them, and we can get into some of them later, but the idea is that they grow all around us, and uh, they're good for something. Well, here where I am in the state of Rhode Island, the dandelion is hated on because it comes up in lawns, and lawns are the most misconstrued idea 
that I can imagine. And back in the West, when I came from San Diego, people were starting to realize lawns are just a waste of water. It's basically an ego trip. We're trying to make our house look good. There's all these other things. Where I am now, people are actually letting their front yards go back to meadow. Um, but that's there's a couple things here. The, the dandelions always show up in lawns, and that's a good reason not to spray junk on your lawn. Years yeah. and years ago, my father kept fertilizing the lawn, and I finally got him to stop that. But here's the thing. In nature, um, one thing that happens that doesn't happen in most gardens is symbiosis between plants. Um, I experienced this in my garden in a profound way this year. Uh, when you typically plant a garden in the Western idea of how a garden is planted, you create these sterile rows and you pull out all the other plants except for that onion or that whatever you're growing. And there's no symbiosis of plants going on there. This year, when I and this is the second year it's happened, I always plant a, a basil plant that is called African or Asian. People recognize it because it has the flowering spikes up top that last all season long, and it will come back. It's not annual. It'll come back. But I noticed one of the spike arms kept reaching down to touch the parsley, and mm. so I put it back up, and then a different arm went down to touch the parsley. So it was a clear indicator to me there was some symbiosis going. And what I'll tell you is the best parsley we have ever grown there. Now, to pull this away from a cultivated garden back to what you're talking about, when you get out into nature, these plants are growing next to each other. There's all kinds of symbiosis. And another thing, the Japanese have slowly started to move away from these sterile rows that I just described in certain places. And I just saw some programs where it looks like a weed field, basically, and you go in there and all their produce is growing, their vegetables in there. And what they're saying is this symbiosis makes the, the uh, what they're growing, whether it's a potato or anything else, all the more potent. But if we get back to the idea you're expressing, do you feel like there's a nutritional difference? So if we consider the dandelion uh, in the spring, I think you're mentioning that the, the new leafy greens are good to go. By the time we get around to fall, if I'm not mistaken, you mentioned that the roots are good to go. Do you feel like the nutritional value of what you're getting from the plant has shifted with the sky clock? Uh, certainly, yes. In the sense that the different nutrients accumulate differently in the different parts of the plant, right? So the leaves, their properties are slightly different than the roots of dandelion, right? And as the season progresses, the leaves in and of themselves, I suspect, would change, right? So the very early spring, nice, fresh growing leaves have a certain energy to them, right? And so it's hard to say with the nutrition on this. I, I went and I did a lot of research and I created this chart that I sent you guys that I'll have up on my website for folks. And I, I, I scoured a lot of places to find information on this and it was very difficult to find the actual listed nutrients. So I collected that all into this chart here. And I don't know about the nutrition exactly on how that changes, but what I would say for sure changes is the energetics of the plant, right? So there's life force in this plant. And so that early, that early growth, where the energy of the plant is now, where it's putting forth its energy to grow, there's something there for sure, I would say. And so that young leaf has more of that life force energy, in my opinion, than the old mature leaf that's in the middle of the summer that's just sitting there collecting the energy from the sun, you know, for wintertime kind of a thing, right? 
And so then the same applies for the roots. So if you were to dig up the roots in the middle of the in the middle of the summer, the energy in those roots would be much different than if you dig it up in November kind of a thing. Right. So you can imagine the plant is sitting here on the ground all year. It's growing away. The fall comes. All of this energy that it stored all summer, it now directs it down into the root. And so there's a noticeable difference when digging up dandelion roots in the summer. They're all sort of tough and fibrous and they're not very good and they're difficult to chew. Come fall and you dig them out after the frost, even better kind of a thing. Obviously, before the ground is frozen, if you're in that kind of a place, the root is very tender and it's very sweet and you can tell there's a lot going on there. And so absolutely, all of these things are uh, change with the sky clock. And the nutritional values, well, they must also change, I would say. Like that root, for example, digging it up at the appropriate time would almost certainly have to have a higher concentration of nutrition in it just based on the way that it tastes alone. So we need to put a couple common sense ideas out there in the world just to make sure we're doing our part here. If you do not know what a plant is, do not ingest it. Do not eat it. People who collect mushrooms can tell you this all day. There are many plants that look like another plant that are poisonous. So let's just get that on the record. If you don't understand what you're looking at, don't eat it. Most people understand what a dandelion looks like. But here's another thing. In the Gerson method, which I've talked a lot about, uh, which has used the juice of plants to cure cancers, the idea is that when you juice the plant, and this will relate directly to plants in the wild like we're talking about, and I'll tell you why. When you juice the Gerson juice, You're masticating it carefully where the heat doesn't go up, and then you're pressing the juice out. In other words, the particles and the cells are still alive when you drink it. You are literally drinking life. Since you've removed all the fiber, your digestive system doesn't come into play so much. It pretty much absorbs almost straight into your blood. But the main point here is you are literally ingesting the life force of that plant. Now, if you go out to a dandelion and you understand that it's a dandelion and you understand that no weed killer or fertilizer have been sprayed in the area you're harvesting your dandelion, like Roundup as an example, um, if you know it's a safe place to get a dandelion and eat it, when you chew that up, you're masticating it, but you're not destroying every cell. And when you eat it down, that's different than when you go to the produce in your grocery store. Because many of those things were harvested a week or more back. Uh, They were refrigerated or any number of things. The life force has diminished with every hour that's passed. When you pull a dandelion out of the ground, there's life essence in that. And when you ingest it, you're ingesting life essence. Um, Anything you'd add to that, Simon? Yeah, absolutely, Crow. And this is really what I want to get across. And with that, it's so easy to get that life force in. And in my opinion, okay, so, so easy, right? So you literally walk out your front door and there's dandelions growing in your lawn, right? And if there's no dandelions in your lawn, then you got to rethink what you're doing with your lawn, right? And if you don't have a lawn, well, the closest little green space to you has dandelions in it pretty much, right? And if it doesn't have dandelions, well, it probably has one of these other uh, weeds, which are super common and super easy to identify when, you know, you get the right book, we can recommend something later. It's really easy to go out and find literally your front door right there, dandelion green go growing. You're walking out the door anyway. All you got to do is stop and bend down and pick a little piece of it and put it in your mouth, right? That's it. And now you're getting some of that life force from that dandelion into you. 
And even just that, you know, you just take one tiny little nibble and you nibble on it. I would say that's, you know, infinitely more beneficial than passing up on that dandelion, right? Like not only have you taken it into you, but you've now cultivated this whole mindset of curiosity and wondering and all of these things, right? Because you actually stopped and you looked down and you saw you identified a dandelion and now you you picked it and and then you put it in your mouth, right? And now you're chewing on it and you're getting all these tastes. Like these are all tastes that you would almost like you basically never have tasted these tastes before from the grocery store, right? Especially if you're not used to eating vegetables, right? And so there's this whole new excitement going on in your mouth. And just having that little bit of a taste of it is like a, is like a, a, a toning. It's almost like you're working out your internal organs, right? Because these tastes, it just activates so many things. You'll feel your digestion begin to activate and you'll, you'll begin salivating more. And all of these things will happen just from having the tiniest little nibble. And that life force I suspect there's so much of it in just the tiniest little piece that it's so beneficial. And not only is it just life force, but with these weeds, I think that the particular type of life force that they bring forth in their resilience, right? Think about where, like, where have you seen a dandelion grow? Like literally in concrete, like these things will grow in the most extreme conditions. And so just think about what it takes in a resilience type of a manner to be able to grow in concrete, right? Like this seed came there, fell in this tiny little crack where you see no dirt and out sprung a dandelion, you know, and take that compared to that little lettuce that you go and you buy your living Boston lettuce that takes so much care to get it just right. And if you don't do just the right thing, it's going to die and it won't be back next year. And, you know, all these things, right? You eat that. Okay. You get some stuff. Sure. Okay. But you're certainly not going to get that life force energy of resilience. And right now we're all so, uh, I mean, what's the opposite of resilient? You know, we're, we're not resilient, right? We get sick all the time. There's just so many factors that are affecting us. You guys know all about these things, right? And so getting that pattern of resilience into our bodies, I think is uh, super important. And from my experience, it's certainly helped me out a lot. And I just really love how easy it is to be able to get some of that into you with these plants. You know, I strongly suspect that there's a social engineering agenda going on, even just with this concept of having the well-manicured lawn and using glyphosate to kill off everything else besides the grass. It's always seemed totally ridiculous to me, just the whole concept of a lawn and all that. Yeah. And a lawn, maybe it's just the words we're using, you know, different terminology. Lawns, in a different sense, like that meadow crow you were talking about. I like the idea of a mowable metal. You know, sometimes lawns are super necessary. You know, you're going to have a garden party. You're going to have your family. You know, we're going to set up a picnic table. We're going to have a bunch of people over. We need somewhere we can stand around and have a good time. But you don't have to have just pure, perfect looking grass all the time, right? Why don't you just like let it grow and have a whole bunch of cool flowers and all kinds of awesome weeds and things you can eat in there. And then if you need a, if you need a lawn, you need to have a bunch of people over, you just go out there and you mow it. No big deal. It all grows back kind of a thing, right? Well, there's some interesting things that have gone on here in Rhode Island. Um, when I was young, there was a field across the street from me, which would be filled with milkweed. And at a certain point in the summer, the monarchs would come. 
there became this tradition uh, from the time I was young in the 70s um, up into the late 80s where they began mowing all the fields. And it was a real shame. We're now seeing that people are moving back to not mowing the fields. But there's another point we should probably make here as television is rife with this supposed class action lawsuit against Roundup weed killer, which they are calling a probable carcinogen. Bit of a joke. Suspect <laughs> what's going on there is once class action lawsuits occurred, I think it's all said and done, right? You can't come back at them again. I, I'm not sure about that. But my point is this. When I was in San Diego growing things, uh, a lot of people, this was at the outset of the organic push. A lot of people wanted to get certified organic for whatever reason. The problem became that it was years and years. If you had fertilized a lot to grow something or it had a lawn or whatever was there, it took years and years and years in nature to be able to be certified organic. So I think it's critically important that people understand um, weed killer is not the way. Fertilizers that are not organic are not the way. Now, I fertilized my garden this year, but what I used was old crushed up lobster shells and everything from that industry, all organic, no chemical. And I use very little of it. There's no need for it. But I think that's a critical thing because if you walk out into the world and you pick a plant that you know is supposed to be good for you, and yet it's been sprayed or fertilized I think we can question the nutritious validity. But where do you want to go from here, Jason? We have a whole list of different plants, and I think it's probably a good idea to try to get beyond the dandelion so people start to get the scope. Though, Simon, most of this list is put together for your area, right, up in the Great White North? Well, eastern uh, United States, for sure, I would say these plants will basically all grow. What about starting right here on the first paragraph he's got written here, this concept of superfoods and how they're marketed to people, but only people with money can afford them. It's, again, kind of a social engineering thing where they're convincing people that you have to have a lot of money to be able to afford these things that are so amazing for you, as opposed to just walking out your front door. <laughs> yeah, that's it. This is it. So I'm calling these things free superfoods, right? Because of that, you know, so I looked up superfoods and, of course, you know, dictionary definition is basically a food that's good for you, right? So that means that the term superfood is just a marketing thing because spinach is, you know, all these things that we can get are superfoods. But the superfoods that you see for sale most of the time don't come from anywhere near you, are super processed, and again, come from somewhere over the sea and is something that you couldn't possibly grow where you live and you need some, you know, you need some higher authority to process it and do everything and then send it to you in a, you know, freeze dried container so that you can keep it for eight months on your shelf kind of a thing. Right. And then you spend 50 bucks on it and it only lasts you a few weeks. Right. Well, superfoods really good for you. Okay, sure. Well, so look at here's a I got a list. What do I have there? Like 12 plants that basically if you're living in the eastern United States in Canada and like you can go pretty far. I'd say like a lot of these would grow all the way across and they're all superfoods essentially. So I went through and I scoured the depths of the Internet for all the information I could find on the actual nutrients that are present in these plants and if I could find anything on the how high of a level of nutrient density these plants had. And basically what I came away with that most of these plants, when grown in a condition that is, you know, at least somewhat favorable, they have way higher 
nutrition density than your regular veggies at the grocery store. So eating one little leaf of dandelion is going to get you way more, you know, vitamin E and vitamin A kind of a thing than eating one leaf of spinach, right? So you need way less of these plants to get that nutrition than you would of sort of regular vegetables. And so, yeah, here's, here's superfoods all around you. You know, you want to make a, a superfood smoothie powder blend thing, right? Well, you go out and you identify whatever four or five of these plants that grow around you and you think, okay, yeah, I like these ones. They have good things that I want in them. You can, you can take them inside and you can dry them and you can, you know, bust them up in your blender. And, and then you have, here's this dry powder that you have that you can use as a superfood powder, right? And you add that into your smoothie or whatever different ways, turn it into capsules, different ways that people like to take their so-called superfoods. Well, here's a whole bunch right here, right? So the idea is really like they're free superfoods, right? Because again, nature provides, right? No lie in nature. Nature provides everything we need. These plants are growing all around us, presenting themselves to us because I think we need these plants right now the most in our lives because of the uh, because of their nutrient density as well as that resilience factor. And that resilience factor is something that you're definitely not going to get in a highly processed uh, superfood type of a supplement that you buy at the grocery store, right? Because again, you know, like you, like you say, Crow, you sort of mentioned earlier, the vegetables were grown weeks ago and picked and all that. Well, superfoods, who knows really how long they're on the shelf for, right? And when they were picked and processed and how they were processed and all of these things, well, they've certainly lost that element of life force energy, right? They're no longer alive. These plants, when you go out and you just take them, there's life in there. And so that superfood quality, I would say, gets taken to a whole new level when you actually take in that life force energy. And I suspect that life force energy dies off very quickly. I don't think that there is really anything left once it's, you know, been in the grocery store or something like that for any sort of period of extended period of time. That's it. They grow everywhere. And what I want to touch on a little bit here is these plants really grow the most in the cities, right? So the city is this huge space where so many people live, right? And there's so much sort of destruction going on there, right? With all the, you know, buildings and making roads and all these things that happen in the cities, right? Well, as soon as you start bringing that disturbance to the earth, the first thing that pops up are these types of plants, right? With that, the city is this huge place where people live, lots of activity, and these plants grow there. So they're really presenting themselves to us because the city is where the lowest level of resilience in humans is, right? The city is really where people are getting cracked down on and everyone just doesn't feel well and everybody gets the flu and all that sort of a thing, right? Where out in the, you know, the country, everyone seems to be a little bit more resilient in that they go outside and they do things and there's a lot more going on out there and the air is fresher and all that. But in the city, these plants are like, hey guys, you know, you guys need help. You're struggling here. Here we are. You know, dandelion just presents itself with these beautiful yellow flowers, right? And it's like, pick me, eat me. I'm here to help you sort of a thing, right? And so then that brings me to the idea of the things that grow right around you are good chance, in my opinion, are exactly what you need, 
right? And so we sort of form this relationship with the land upon which we live. And, you know, we are of the earth, right? Mother nature, you know, earth, we are here. We're from the earth. We have an intimate connection with the earth. You know, no matter what uh, empire tries to tell us, you know, we are from the earth and we need the earth. And uh, I would suspect that the earth is always trying to uh, provide for us. And at this particular time, this is really what we need. We need healing. The earth needs healing. These plants present themselves. They really seem to be just the thing that we need as they grow around us. So some really interesting things to think about there in my well, opinion. We, we should jump in here and make a point that I think maybe a lot of people don't consider because you get so busy with your family and your job and how you live and how you eat and what you eat that you don't consider these things. The average person living in the United States has probably not eaten a thing that is living, giving you life essence from a plant. And as long as they can remember, there are exceptions. People have eaten an orange, but even that where I am in Rhode Island, most of the oranges come from Florida, which means they're picked before they're ripe which means when I'm in San Diego, and this is an astounding thing, in San Diego, you will find oranges growing in, in chaparral ground that seems so dry it wouldn't support anything, yet there's a 50-year-old orange tree in front of you. When you eat oranges from that tree, you will never find another orange anywhere that is that good. When I go to the supermarket here to get the oranges that were likely grown in Florida and shipped up, they were picked green or not very ripe and sent up so they could have a shelf life. But here's that that's just a small part. There's still some life in that when you eat it. No telling what chemicals were put on it if it's not organic. The food we get here for as long as I've been alive has been pasteurized, homogenized, and any number of things that I could say. And basically what it means is it's dead. They've taken all the life out of it. And that is against nature. If you were living out in the mountains somewhere, every single plant that you picked up to ingest would have life essence in it, and that's what we're missing. That is so much of the basis for things like the Gerson method and other things. Uh, the nutrition, of course, is a huge part. The idea is, is if every cell in the human body has the proper nutrition, the body's in balance. You could think of it as the Chinese idea, yin and yang. If those two things are in balance, you're healthy. Here in the West, we might consider it fire, water, air, you know, these kind of old alchemical ideas, doing a similar idea, talking about balance. But my point here is, I think it was almost, well, I know it was before 2005 because my father was still alive. He told me about a place where for some reason they loopholed and they were still making apple cider. They were pressing it right there and then with an old style press. In other words, that apple juice was alive. The life essence and the nutrition in that apple was as good as it's ever going to be. It was harvested on the spot, uh, not too early, not too late. And we could go there and actually get living cider. There's nothing like it. In short order, the state came around and said, you can't sell this anymore. You need to pasteurize it. Basically, you need to boil it until you've killed the life essence. That's where we've come. And to put a fine point on it, lots of people come to the United States from Europe and they say, what the hell's wrong with your cheese? You know, they're used to over in places in Europe where the cheese is even still alive. Guess what? Here in the United States, our cheese is not alive, been pasteurized. Cheese is supposed to be alive as if it were a yogurt or something similar. And just before I get too far off point, even the yogurts we buy here, look at the ingredients. Yeah, it might be alive, but I'm not even sure you could qualify it as yogurt. There is so much damn sugar and other things in what they're calling yogurt is to make it a mockery. 
So these are the important reasons. But Simon, do you want to outline a few plants that we can cover? Yep, absolutely. Why don't you just mention some of them by name so people can have it in mind? Okay, so just real quick, there's some great books out there, obviously, a lot of great books on this kind of a thing, right? And a lot of these plants grow on every continent around the world, apparently, in slightly different forms. So basically, it's the same, um, how do you, uh, the family of plant or the, anyway, however exactly, I forget now, with the way the plants break down. Basically, these plants are so common, they grow all over the world. And dandelion, classic example. The next one that I really like is the red clover. So here's another one that's fairly easy to identify, has a really nice, you know, kind of pink flower that comes out in the summertime. Everybody can identify, you know, the three leaf clover, right? And um, it's, uh, you know, the classic sort of a clover thing. And so here's another plant that literally grows all over the place, grows up for free. I see it all the time in construction zones or, you know, somebody's just done something and made a big pile of dirt and there's, you know, there's red clover growing on there along with a whole bunch of these other things. And, you know, this plant is, is so, so powerful. Um, you know, if you ever, if you go and you pick up some of the herb books, right? So again, different layers, there's, you know, the herbalism aspect, the way herbalists look at plants, which is, you know, very medicinally, this plant's super popular in there. But then at the same time, it also has all of these really great nutrients, because with these red clover, you know, they put it under the um, under the nitrogen fixing, you know, so now I'm talking about a whole different thing. But basically, it works with microbes on its root nodules and it exchanges starches, sugars to these little microorganisms in exchange for nitrogen kind of a thing. Right. So normally nitrogen's not really available. You need to get nitrogen from dying life, basically. But there's nitrogen in the air all over us, all around us. And so these plants have this affinity to be able to take nitrogen from the air, atmospheric nitrogen, and make it available in the ground for other plants to use, right? So you were talking about that symbiosis earlier, and red clover is a perfect example of that happening. So red clover is making the ground in which it grows better able to support the life of other plants, right? Which is amazing. And so that's what this plant is doing. Well, so maybe if that's what it's doing in the ground and on the earth, maybe that's what it does also in our bodies, right? I always like to think about what the plant is doing in the on the earth and how that corresponds to what is happening on the inside kind of a thing, right? Because, you know, the, the correspondence, right, is always a big thing in alchemy and so on, right? The, you know, you can think about that. So red clover, really, really great, super high in magnesium, calcium, vitamin C, vitamin, uh, you know, iron, all the, there's a lot of different things, right? Another great one are the thistles. So thistle, you, you know, you think thistle, oh my God, what am I going to do with a thistle? This terrible spiky thing is going to hurt me, right? That's what we think when we think of a thistle. But no, I mean, 
Yes, maybe if you go in there and you get the really spiky one and you just go at it and you, you're not nice to it, it's going to bite back kind of a thing, right? <laughs> so there's the idea of making friends with these plants almost, right? So instead of just like stomping in there and getting all angry at the thistle and then it pricks you and then you get even angrier and all that kind of a thing, well, you go in there with curiosity and an open mind and just sort of be nice to it and look at it and touch it gently and observe and see what it's all about. And then, of course, you can use the whole plant, right? So the leaves and the roots, again, different times of the year, different parts of the plant and different properties of that plant. And the thistle leaves are really neat. And especially, again, I'm just going to step back a little bit, is the, is the idea of which part of the plant to pick at which particular time of the year, right? This is really important for you to get the most goodness out of, out of a plant when you're picking it. And it's that part where it's growing. They call it the Mary stem, you know? Okay, sure. But basically, it's that fresh young growth. Where is the energy of the plant at that particular time of the year? That's the thing you want to pick. So when there's this thistle growing, there's an obvious part on the thistle at the top where there's a nice, young, supple, tender part of the plant that is growing. And that is always the part of the plant that is the best. And so you can pick these little parts. And with thistle, you know, you wonder how do you deal with the, you know, the spikes on it? Well, I really like the idea of making this like thistle juice lemonade really easy. Go out, take your scissors, you know, say you got a bunch of thistles in your garden. You go out and you snip a bunch of the thistles and you don't just have to get the tender part, you know, you get a little bit extra and you snip it, you bring it in, in the morning, throw it in your blender, throw in some water, throw in an apple, a little bit of lemon bust it all up and then strain that. And so now the blender has busted up all the, all the thistle prickly parts, you know, it's sort of turned it all into a nice mash. And then you put it through your, your cheesecloth or your strainer and you strain it out. So now you have no pulp and all you're left with is this delicious, sweet, lemony, thistly drink. And, you know, it's delicious because you have nice, sweet apple and lemon in there. And then those things are all good on and in and of themselves. And now you also have all of this life force and nutrition from this thistle and you used a thistle that grew for free in your backyard. You didn't get angry at it and spray it and pull it out. You actually made friends with it and it's providing something for you. And because thistles growing in your backyard, well, the good chance that what your body needs right now is present inside of that thistle, right? So on my chart here, um, you can go down and I have the uh, the sow thistle listed, right? And there's a couple different kinds of that. But right on the top of that nutrition list is omega-3, right? And it's like, oh, geez, omega-3, well, that's a fat. Well, where, you know, a lot of people are, you know, the, the omega fats is always one of those like superfood things that tries to get sold all the time. And where to, you know, go buy these oils from you know, Norway and all the, you know, all that cod liver and all that stuff. Well, look, omega-3 in the sow thistle, right? So just by eating some of this thistle, you're getting a whole bunch of fatty goodness into you, right? And then that's not to mention the zinc and manganese and iron and all these other things, plus the medicinal benefits of all these plants, right? And again, at the beginning of the episode, I talked about that sliding scale of, is this plant a food or is it a medicine? Well, it's both. But, you know, and where does it fall sort of on that scale, right? So thistles, red clovers, dandelions, you know, here's some things that 
you can easily pick out, get out your book, identify it. You know, again, there's a few different kinds of thistle. Some are more prickly than others. Some are easier to harvest. But at the end of the day, there it, it's all good. Let's talk a little bit about juicing for a moment, because that was part of what you just said. Here's the truth about juicing. To juice in the best way you can, if you want to buy a juicer, it's not cheap. It is not cheap. The primary best juicer out there is called Norwalk. It's about $2,500 US. There is another one that I'm aware of, which I will be getting at some point. Uh, it's about $500 less than that, called a Pure Juicer. These are both proved by the Gerson system. Now, here's the problem. When you put something in a blender, um, you're going to get the nutrients. You've harvested it fresh, um, as we're describing here. But the, the motion of those blades is going to destroy cells. Uh, whether or not it destroys them all, I guess it's about how long you blend it, uh, how much heat gets there, and how much those blades spin. So while you will be ingesting the nutrients, if you want that life force, uh, there are differing levels of how you juice. If you want max life force, you have to do what's called mastication, which is grinding. Like Remember the old hand grinders people used to use back in the day? You always see someone like with hamburger using a hand grinder. One of those hand grinders, if you put apples through it, as an example, or carrots, that's not destroying the life force. Then if you take that pulp you've made, wrap it in a cloth, and press it, um, what comes out of there is the max life force you can get. And I think we should make this distinction for people. It's not for everyone. Everybody cannot afford these other juicers. But I will mention, uh, and I was surprised because I was looking at the Pure Juicer the other day from the linked from the Gerson website. They now have payment plans, so you don't have to pony up if people are interested in this. And these are the juicers that are used to cure serious disease for people using the Gerson method to try to beat some form of cancer or other known serious diseases. And I just want to put that on the record so people understand. So many of these dang juicers that you go get at Walmart for 25 bucks or something, the first thing you'll notice is there's a metal grid that the juice is forced through. If you look at the size of those holes, you'll immediately understand what it's been designed to do. It's designed to destroy every cell. And in destroying every cell, the life force is gone by the time you ingest it. Not only that, it's spinning, blades are spinning, everything is spinning, creating heat. If it goes above 110 degrees, it's for all intents and purposes been sterilized of life pretty well. And I just wanna get all these points on the record. Jason, where do you wanna go from here? You know, I'm quite curious if there's something to the different areas that people would live in. For instance, uh, years ago, what would grow when they would be doing agriculture? And I'm talking about like a long time ago. Would they allow weeds, for lack of a better term, to grow with them because they knew of the symbiosis that was necessary amongst all the different plants? Well, I mean, that's a good question, right? And I think the question that goes along with that is, you know, how far back in time are we talking sort of a thing, right? You know, so a couple hundred, you know, a hundred years ago, you know, I don't know. But what I do know is that our ancestors brought a lot of these plants from Europe here. So did they actually grow them in their fields with their next to their wheat kind of a thing? I don't know. But I'm fairly certain that they at least grew them in their like gardens around their home sort of a thing in their in their herb garden type of 
deal, right? I, I, I think we can demonstrate that they did. As a matter of fact, the thing I mentioned about Arkansas is the poke salad idea. You can go right. out on almost any fence line and find that. So what we find is if we were going to go back 100, 150 years or whatever you want to put that before industrialization of farming idea in place, those people right. knew what was to eat in the natural yeah. surrounding. And so if you're thinking of a person that knows winter's coming, you're not going to kill things that are edible. But here's something more. Where I am in Rhode Island, to this day, we now see the revival of the old supposed indigenous people's growing plans. In a field you can find right now in Rhode Island, you will see three things growing together. A corn stalk, a bean, which is being supported by the corn stalk, and a squash plant at the bottom. There's a symbiosis going there. Not only is the corn supporting the bean, but the nutrients that they are taking or putting back into the ground make it balanced. And what most people have forgotten is even in the most conscientious kind of farming days, there used to be a biblical idea, which is still as valid today as it ever was. You grow for a certain number of years and then you let it go what's called fallow. You let your field rest to recuperate because these plants are pulling nutrients. You see, when the Indians here where I am were doing it, with the three plants I just described, it was a symbiosis, so you didn't deplete the soil. So I think it's very safe to assume that back in the day before industrialized farming, uh, if what we now call a weed was edible, that was not getting pulled because people yeah. knew they could live on it. And not only that, their livestock could certainly live on it if they couldn't. So I think it's simple to deduce these things. But I will say there is a big insurgence here where I am, and you can actually go out in places and find the old indigenous people's method of growing those three plants together uh, to be in symbiosis. But anyhow, sorry for stepping on you there, Simon. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, okay, I'm going to go down that road now. Yes. Okay, that's right. So there's a huge movement with all of this happening right now. And I've made that on the little topics here is the idea of forest gardening. Okay, so this is the idea of growing plants in symbiosis so that they help each other grow better, basically, right? And with this forest gardening idea, it's that we're setting up perennial type systems. So we set up a system that only gets better with time, okay? So think of an apple tree. You plant a little apple tree. You got to take care of it at first, you know, and then after a few years, there it is. You no longer have to water it. You can basically just let this apple tree grow and it will get bigger, it will produce more apples, and it will require less maintenance as time goes on. So you can think of this thing, I love the idea of an energy audit, okay? Energy in versus energy out, right? Think of your cornfield out there. Just It totally boggles the mind when you begin to break down how much energy is required just to plant that one acre of corn, say, right? The tractor and the fuel and all of the things, right? Then at the end of the season, he goes out there, and you harvest that corn and you get, say, a set amount of, you know, call it calories as a, as a measure of energy, right? Okay, so now you have this energy required in to grow it and you have the energy out that you get from it. Totally unbalanced in this system, right? Obviously, the amount of energy to grow this thing far exceeds the amount of energy that you gain from it. Now we move over to this forest gardening idea, right? And so the idea of forest gardening is that we're observing nature and then we take the lessons that we learn from nature and we attempt to apply them in our own gardens. So here's the idea 
of exalting nature, right? Crow. So when in alchemy and spagyrics, there's you can take these plants and you can, humans have the ability to exalt them to a higher level of potency, right? You've discussed all these things. So I think that this is a very similar concept applied to the idea of growing plants. Okay, so we observe nature. Nature's growing. There's this hedgerow, you know, in the field, and there's, you know, 10, 15 different plants that all grow there, and nobody takes care of them, and they all grow by themselves, and a bunch of them are edible, and they support all of this life, and all of these things are happening there. So, you know, so you get on your observation goggles, and you go out there, and you look, and you see, what's nature doing? Oh, well, look, I I noticed that there's these different layers. We have these, like, dandelions growing down really low, and then we have these little bit higher we have some raspberry shrubbery that's a little bit taller and you know in between there we have some other plants and then we have this vine that's growing up there's this wild grapevine growing up this tree you know look here's this apple tree right here and and then there's this other tree that i don't know and okay well so there's these different layers happening on this place well so that means that i can grow things in layers in my garden and so instead of just having a two-dimensional flat plane of your typical field or garden space that is just tilled and flat and you grow things in one dimension or in one you know that one single row and that's it well now i'm going to go into my garden and i'm going to try to mimic what nature is doing because nature seems to be working really well and nobody's taking care of it over there and it just keeps on growing and becoming more abundant well i want that principle in my garden except i want the things in my garden that i really enjoy or the things that i need right okay so instead of a like wild apple tree that you know may not taste so good i'm gonna go and i'm gonna pick one of my favorite varieties of apple and i'm gonna you know i'm gonna make sure it grows here and i'm gonna plant that one and then i'm going to get other plants to support that. So I'm going to go and I'm going to get some of these nitrogen fixing plants. Like I mentioned earlier, the idea of the ability to take nitrogen from the atmosphere and fix it into the ground. So now you're actively fertilizing the ground all year round, sort of, with plants that grow there and will come back every year. And so now I'm setting it up in these different layers. I got my trees, I got my shrubs, I got my herbs along the bottom and they're all have different areas of that three dimensional space in which they grow. And because I've learned about these different plants, you know, I can stick in different ones. I, oh, I really like raspberries. I'm going to stick that in. Ooh, I really love strawberries. Let's put that in, you know, and then see what else grows. And so there's the idea of forest gardening, and then I'm taking it to another angle. I put another little spin on it. What I was been really practicing is the idea of wild forest gardening, I'm calling it. Okay. So in forest gardening, it's like an art, right? Every artisan has their own way of expressing themselves in their art. And this is a similar way. And so do you want a very manicured forest garden in that you're going to pick every single plant that grows and you're going to pick exactly where you want to grow and everything. Okay. Well, that takes quite a bit of effort and you're welcome to do that. And I'm sure it'll work out really well for me, wild forest gardening. So this is really taking that energy audit idea to the next level. Again, how much energy do you put in to how much energy do you get out? Or another way of thinking about it is how little effort can I put into growing things to how much abundance can I get out of that system, okay? So again, looking at nature, it just grows. I put in zero energy and lots of energy comes out. 
Okay, so wild forest gardening, I'm going to put in some energy at the beginning. I'm going to pick again my my favorite few things, trees, you know, fruit trees, berry bushes, and some herbs that I like. And I'm going to stick those around. I'm going to prepare my ground, you know, I'm going to till it up. I'm going to plant these things. And then there's a couple methods that I like. One of them is I go and I buy a whole bunch of seeds of different medicinal and edible plants. And I mix them all up in a bucket and I just spread them around. I just sprinkle them all over around the few things that I've planted that I definitely wanted. And I'm going to see what grows. So now I've sort of, you know, I've seeded the area with a whole bunch of seeds of different things. And, you know, I like them all. If they all grow, great. If they don't all grow, no big deal. Seeds are cheap. So now these plants get to determine where they like to grow. Okay, so then some plants like to grow where it's really hot and sunny and dry. Some plants prefer to grow where it's cool and damp and shady, right? Not everything likes full sun on the flat field. And so when preparing my garden space, if I can come in and add texture to my landscape in that instead of just having a flat lawn, I'm going to now dig some holes and pile some mounds at a very basic level, okay? So now I have low wet spots and high dry spots. And then on those hills, there's different sides of that hill. There's the north side, the east, the west, and the south, and all of these different variations in the texture in the landscape. And all of those different textures are providing different growing conditions for these different plants. So now all of these seeds, different ones sprout, different places, different times, and we kind of let nature go. Okay, now, now I really get to sit back and observe, and it's really about observation, right? So now I'm observing, I'm seeing what's working, I'm saying, oh, great, look, all these uh, really nice um, you know, kale plants have sprouted over in this corner over here, but they didn't sprout anywhere else. Well, I wonder why. There's something about this corner that the kale plants really like. And oh, look over here, my dandelions are growing and so on and so forth. Oh, look, my kale plants are getting uh, overcrowded by some of these other plants, which I've identified. And oh, look, I didn't even plant these plants. These were ones that I didn't even put in my seed mixture. And yet they need and yet they are growing. And so now I've but I identify them and I learn about them rather than just getting angry and pulling them out. And now I can tend that garden and direct it towards growing the things that I really like by pulling out some plants, giving space and light to the plants that I really like, like my kale. But there's all of these other things that grew, right? So with a relatively low amount of energy in, I'm creating a system that is producing huge amounts of energy. And as the years go on, this system only becomes better because I've set it up in such a way that it creates its own biomass, its own fertilizer. And year after year, it becomes better and better. All right. So let's jump in here. We're getting close to the top of the first hour here. And in closing, uh, I'll say a couple things. The, the whole thing about what we're talking about is we're all dependent on grocery stores now. And if anything ever happened to the food supply chain, there are so many people out there who would not know what to do. It's time. 
It's time to start getting back with your eye on nature, grow a garden if you have the wherewithal to do it. If you're in a place where you can hike in the woods, so many books you can buy to find out what's growing native in your area. Learn to identify them. Have a teacher teach you. Um, if you get interested in mushrooms, I'll tell you flat out, do not eat mushrooms in the wild until you've been trained by an expert. Not a safe thing to do. You can actually die eating the wrong mushrooms. Um, around where I am, people do it. But I'll tell you a, st a story in closing. I grew up in the East County of San Diego, way out in the hills, and I spent endless hours of my childhood hiking. The first time I found a wild strawberry, it blew my mind. First of all, it was up on a rock cliff. It didn't even look like there was enough dirt to support a plant, and there were these little bright red strawberries. Best strawberry I've ever eaten in my life. Same thing happened when I was out by a stream one day, miles and miles out in a place called Hopatool in San Diego. Back in the 70s, it was so wild. I found these onions, best onions you've ever had in your life. And as a child, I didn't even like onions. The power of what nature can provide for us is an important thing. And industrialized farming has shifted us so far from it. Jason, anything you want to add before we wrap up hour one? Well, there's something I'd like to get into in hour two that probably wasn't hour one material, and that's how things might be affected by the massive amount of chemtrailing that has been going on for decades now. Right. That's a concern. And, you know, as as uh, Simon was speaking, I was going to tell people, uh, depending on where you are, if there's a lot of spraying in the sky, you might want to rinse off the things you eat. It's a concern. It's absolutely a concern. But that does wrap up the first hour of our episode on plants here. We'll probably append an intro that gives you the episode number. When we come back, we're going to talk about things which probably don't fly too well in hour one. Um, but there it is. Join us at crow777radio.com for uh, the free speech zone. And we will address things like chemtrails and uh, other things that are not public fare anymore, apparently. There it is, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome back to the second hour of Crow 777 Radio. We're talking about plants, wild plants. We're talking about ingesting living things, which is so far from the average American and Canadian diets. Actually, maybe I can't speak for Canada. I know there's a lot of farming in places in Canada. Where I am here, there's farming. People still ingesting living things. Uh, but that grocery store, there are precious few things that have any life essence left in your grocery store. There may be a few. And if you go to your organic places, maybe a bit more so because the idea there is they were harvested uh, nearer the time you buy them. But this brings up a whole idea of chemtrails. Since I started covering chemtrails probably at the end of the 90s when no one would accept it was a thing, now that we live in a place where it's admittedly a thing, uh, there's no argument there anymore, I get all kinds of emails about people claiming the forest in their area are diminishing and dying off. And I've never been 100% sure what to make of it other than we know they're spraying heavy metals. We know that aluminum is, I believe it's hydrophobic. I think I have that right. Um, and these can have an effect on plants that you grow. And this is the idea that if you're harvesting things outside, you should probably clean them off with clean water. Um, the point I would make is where I am here in Rhode Island, I notice that it's deforesting. I can see through forests deeply uh, before the leaves fall off. And that's a change. 
And I can't naturally attribute it to chemtrails alone. Uh, a lot of the plants here, like the maples, have about a 50-year life cycle. So it's hard for me to put my finger on, but I definitely do get emails where people have taken pictures to show what they claim is damage from the chemtrailing. We should keep these things in mind. They're spraying heavy metals. If that is correct and true, and it is admitted, um, when you go out to your garden to harvest, uh, probably the surface of the leaves of what you're harvesting, if not the soil, has ingested some of the these things. But anyhow, welcome back, Jason. Good afternoon. Well, I think that there's a lot to be said about that because how can the things that they're spraying in the air not be being taken in by these plants and therefore becoming part of them? And I think that's a serious issue. Let's talk about agendas here for a minute. All over the television where I am in Rhode Island, they're running these class action lawsuits for Roundup. I spoke with a lawyer not too long ago, just in passing. And I asked them about class action lawsuits. Apparently, a lot of class action lawsuits are set up so that after the lawsuit happens, if they lose, they, you can't come back at that place again for the same event. The lawsuit's been settled out. Looks to me like that's probably what's going on with the supposed roundup. And it's ridiculous in its wording. A probable carcinogen. Really? You're going to tell me that roundup is a probable carcinogen. Everyone freaking knows what roundup is doing. But my point here is that what Roundup did was make Roundup ready crops. That's what Monsanto and these, these companies did. And basically what it meant was they wanted to grow their Burbank potato. So they genetically modified it so the Roundup wouldn't kill that plant. But every other plant and weed around it would be whacked by the Roundup. This is the kind of world we're living in. So it's very important when you start to think about going naturally harvesting things that have not been genetically modified, that are growing with a symbiosis in nature. And I can't tell you, in San Diego, I learned this in spades as a child because it used to amaze me all the, the citrus trees growing in ground that was so hard, I couldn't even put a shovel in it. You know, those songs about California are true. It never rains in Southern California, but when it rains, it pours. When I was young, six, seven years, you'd get a wet, wet year. Those days are different now, the weather modification. My point being is you will never eat a better piece of fruit in your life than to go out to that chaparral and find a citrus tree that's been growing in the driest damn dirt you've ever seen, hardest cement, uh, for 20 years. It's amazing that anything can even live, live there. Strawberries, all kinds of things. That's a far cry from everything else we're doing. And at the end of the day, in my view, this comes down to life essence. Before we jump in with Simon, I'm going to put this back on the record because so many people are interested in it. Everyone's aware of the Gerson method and that it's actually cured some of the worst diseases that a human being can get. It can't get them all but it certainly is what I would call real curative medicine. And it's not even really medicine because you're talking about plant juice and fleshing out your body. The Norwalk juicer, which is about 2,500 bucks, these things weigh 65 pounds. Um, they're significant machines. Most people can't afford them. I'm lining up to get a new pure juicer. If you go to the Gerson website, they link to the approved juicers. So the pure juicer there is the one I'm referring to. It's $500 less. It is a two-stage juicer. It has the masticator, which makes the basically the, the vegetable pulp out of whatever you're doing, and then it has the press. And that press presses out pure living juice, which you ingest immediately. They have a payment plan I saw on the website two nights ago. That will open up the door. I think it's 100 or 100-something bucks a month. Still is not cheap, believe me, but it at least puts it in, in range. 
so many people are not going to be able to plunk down. I can't plunk down $2,500 on a purchase that's not a car, you know, once every 10 years. My point being here, those people who are still interested in these effective, proven ideas to ingest living nutrients and living life and life essence of plants, that pure juicer is starting to come into range. So I wanted to get all that on the record, Jason. Anything else? No, let's get back with Simon here, and uh, I think that he's probably got some things that we can talk about in hour two that definitely wouldn't have been good for hour one. All right, lead us in, man. Well, Simon, I know I asked you during the break what you had in mind, so whatever you think is the juiciest thing, let's start with that. Well, you guys were talking about chemtrails, so why don't we bring that idea forward? And as Crow was talking about cleaning off your plants a little bit, and which ones do you want to pick, right? Like, not only is it chemtrails, but there's so many things, right? I mean, there's just everything in in the air around the cities is basically not good for you in a way. But so many people live in the city, right? And so, so many people only really have access to these not ideal locations for things to grow, right? So what do you do, you know? So what do you do, right? So rinsing it off just a little bit is great. And in my opinion, like I just can't worry about it too much to the point of not taking it out of fear of ingesting whatever is sitting on the leaf of this dandelion, right? So, you know, if we live in the city, we're exposed to all these things all the time, basically no matter what we do. And to avoid something that could potentially have such a huge benefit. And as I mentioned earlier, the idea of just taking in that little bit of life force essence and the resilience that it brings, I think it's important to still engage and connect with these plants and take them in. So we have to do our due diligence, right? So, okay, well, we're aware of all the stuff that's happening. We've made sure it's not an obviously sprayed area like train tracks and golf courses and it's not on the side of the major highway it's you know just a local little green space that's near where we live and it is what it is and there are plants growing there well in my opinion and the way i was doing it when i was living in the city was to go there and to to pick those plants and and to use them a little bit and to wipe them off and to just eat a little bit just to get that life force in. And as far as the effects of chemtrails on the way the plants grow and all that, I mean, it's so hard to say, right? I mean, certainly there must be, it must be affecting them. And Crow, you're saying people take these pictures of the forests and all that. And, and I see that firsthand. And especially down where I was living before, it was, you know, real agriculture land. And like you say, you can't say that it's just one thing. And I don't think it is just one thing. I think there are so many factors affecting these forests that they're, you know, exhibiting signs of deterioration from the agriculture as well. Right. And so they're cutting these forests. They're becoming smaller and smaller. They're only these like small patches. And then all the stuff that gets sprayed and all of that leaches in. And then there's just so many factors affecting these. But in the sense of the plants that we're just growing and what I'm talking about here, I can't get all too worried about that sort of a thing. Like we just live in that world. And if you're in the city, then you're getting bombarded by it. And, you know, you got to do your due diligence by drinking your juices and, you know, trying to get these heavy metals and such out of your body as much as possible. But I suggest that I think getting in that little bit of life force 
you know, in the best way that you can is uh, really important. I think for an average person, that's a true thing. Um, you know, the Gerson method makes a distinction. Um, you can use the masticating juicers and actually extract juice, but they make a point. If you're a cancer patient, that's not going to get it. It's like Sean. How many people remember Sean? We're going to try to get Sean back, by the way, who's back on his feet making cannabis-based medicines again. Sean will tell you, you will never cure cancer with CBD alone. You have to have the THC component. So the real distinction here is the majority of us are relatively healthy. We're not dying of cancer, most of us, right now that we know of. Um, yeah, to get those those plants in you, it's critically important. It's life essence. And how much effort does it take to wash them? And by the way, if you wanted to be a little more strict, use distilled water. Soak them for a minute right. Um, right. and and do, do your thing. But if you're a, a person fighting a real disease... The distinction needs to be drawn. Um, you've become sick because of the toxins you've ingested, almost certainly. There are other reasons, but that's certainly a big part of it. So you don't want to be eating things that are polluted in some way. Uh, but that the, it, it, it's a catch-22 here. I, I would guess, Simon, the average American, if you took the average American diet, I'd say probably for the average family, 5% of that is vegetable or fruit matter. At this point, so many people eat ordering in every meal. And even if you're getting your broccoli that way, that damn broccoli is usually so cooked as to not be a vegetable anymore. Who can remember back when I was a kid in the United States, everything was boiled to death. Well, when you do that, you've ruined the veracity of, of what you're trying to consume there. So I agree with you, Simon, for the average person who's not fighting off some hell-bent illness, just washing it is good enough. So let's pick up there. Yeah. Why do you think it was boiled? That was the culture. Um, the culture was, it had become TV dinners. This is all going to tie to TV again. Okay. Um, people started watching TV and there's your bird's eye this and your swans and that. And by the way, everything's in a can, you know, the, the whole canning industry became a thing. Cause you got to realize my grandparents, my parents' parents lived in a time where they canned stuff out of their garden every year. And then all of a sudden supermarkets had readily everything in a can. And that became a thing. Well, nobody knew at the time that tin might not have been the best thing to be putting all that food in. Um, so they started lining cans. Would they line them with plastic? The point is, is the culture has changed. At first, we were convinced science did all these things. We didn't have to work as hard, so we did those things. But we paid a heavy price. The sickness went up. The cancer rates went up. Everything went up. And in my lifetime, when I sat down at a dinner table, what you basically saw was a steak burned till it was black and any vegetable that was hitting the table had come out of a frozen or a can and it was boiled till it was dead. I mean, beyond lifeless and, and nutrient rich. So if you drank the water, you might get some nutrients, but that was the culture back in the day in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, it, you know, it is what it is. Right. And as we evolve on our path here, becoming higher minded human beings, uh, you know, we get exposed to these different things and inevitably it all leads back to nature at the end of the day. Right. The more connected we can become with nature. Um, I know you guys had Matt Landman on there last time he was on. That was, you know, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Right. Is putting down the technology and going outside. Right. 
And, you know, he was talking about his uh, coriander seed there, you know, enjoyed that little story it was pretty fun. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's what it's all about. Right. And that's just like one little tiny example of, you know, something that connects you to nature and connecting to nature is what it's all about. And there's nothing more connecting than ingesting. Right. This thing is literally now becoming a part of you. It is feeding your very being. And so what deeper, how can you connect deeper than that? I mean, I, I, I don't think it's possible, really. Well, you know, there's, there's another aspect to this that I was considering. As I grew out my garden the last couple of years, we feed the squirrels, the chipmunks, and the birds, and they leave sunflower seeds that get into the garden. And when they start to sprout, we let them. And then we let the animals eat those sunflower seeds in return. Um, but more than that, there may be certain, we don't weed like we used to, um, you know, like the low things that are clearly going to choke things out. You have to weed those out. But the point I would make uh, is people should look into how the Japanese are doing it. Because what you're pointing out is there's all these native plants that we consider weeds. There's actually quite a few of them. Uh, if you begin to understand that if they were growing in your garden, you could harvest those just like anything else you're growing there, uh, if you understood. And the other thing is to go look at those Japanese gardens, it looks like a field of weeds. They're literally pushing back yeah. weeds to get down to their potatoes and their other things that they're growing. And it's amazing. And then the guys are saying, well, we, we realized it was all too sterile. The other way, we weren't getting the symbiosis. This potato here that I just pulled has way more nutrients from the symbiosis that's been going on here. Not only that, it needs less water. All these reasons to start to reassess. Basically, our idea of a garden at this point, Simon, from my point of view, yeah. is what the industrial farming age brought us. You need these that's neat right. rows and, and cartoons. When I was a kid, you know, the chipmunks trying to get their carrots and fighting the farmer, all these sterile rows, not a weed in sight, just some carrots, right? Uh, that's not nature, man. That is a human imposition on the land. Sounds like more social engineering to me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're right. And, 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 I really, and I really want to go down this path some more and just emphasize this idea some more. And yeah, you know, basically the war ended and they had all these tanks and all of these bomb making material and they didn't know what to do with it and it turned out you could declare war on nature right and i would say that war just moved on to nature the tanks became tractors and the bombs became fertilizer and uh roundup essentially they're the same ingredients and the same factories can make the same thing right let's break down for a moment what roundup is because we've said it several times it's glyphosate Glyphosate is the thing. Yeah, we we weed poison, but weed poison with a yeah. with a purpose. If you want to cover that, Jason, it's it wasn't just like any other weed poison. It was engineered to do a thing. Right, very much so. And it's it's not just for weeds. Like, and it kills people. It kills animals. It like it kills life. It's anti-life, right? And you know, okay, so they design it so that it uh, you know targets broadleaf you know herbs. It doesn't target the grass or whatever, right? It's all. It's all mumbo jumbo and all garbage. And at the end of the day, anti-nature and anti-life and created by empire to lower human. To take, yeah, to take over the food supply, right? I, I mean, let's, let's put a fine point on this. Let's draw the parallel. So they engineered this thing called Roundup, which was a weed killer. And it did. It aimed at broadleaf. It aimed at insects. It aimed at all these things, except that Burbank potato or that certain kind of carrot. 
And by the way, there's a whole story on carrots. Apparently, there was a time when a lot of carrots were purple. But get this, the Duke of Orange made all our carrots. I'm not kidding. Look it up. But to get back to the point, they engineer this thing so that the crop that's going to get on your table has been sprayed to hell with Roundup. But it didn't die. It lived through the poison spray. Everything around it died. That's what was going on. But I'll quickly flash back to tell you how the Gerson method was recognized. The first idea, everything in this world starts as an idea. Nothing more powerful in our world than an idea. Max Gerson is a boy recognized on his farm that when they brought in the fertilizer for the first time, because he was so in tune with nature that all the worms left. And he recognized instantly at age 14 or something like that, that this is not right, man. The worms are gone. This is what we're talking about. That one observation led to one of the very few methods we have to actually fight serious disease. The difference is this. You can act like human beings are here to rule over nature and do it over the hell we want. Or we can recognize that nature's got it all day long over us. We can't replicate that. We can't even totally understand that but we can utilize it. So I think that's the critically important distinction to make um, when we're talking about Roundup and these other things. And just to be perfectly clear about it, if you're growing dandelions in your yard and you're one of those people with a father that like to spray Scott's fertilizer all over it, don't eat that crap. Don't do it. It takes years and years for that stuff to get out. Um, You've got to be smart about these things. You don't want to be a cancer patient when you're 60. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And and just, again, that whole idea of, you know, observing nature and going with what you see, right? There's Gerson. He's seeing this thing. He's noticing it. He's saying, oh, well, wait a second. That's not right. There's something going on here. And he develops this, right? That's this whole idea. I want to just bring out the term permaculture. And anybody who wants to look into that, I mean, I just so highly recommend it. But it's the idea. It's a design science. It's a way of thinking. And it all begins with observation of nature, right? And there's all, you know, there are these different uh, permaculture principles and, you know, but basically it's observe nature, right? And then do some things that nature is doing so that you can tweak it and exalt it, like I mentioned earlier, to be able to grow the things in such a way that they work better for you and create more nutrient density, like what you're referring to there in Japan. Now, There's one guy in particular who I really enjoy. His name is Sepp Holzer. Now, he's this Austrian guy, and he's living in Austria in the Alps, okay? In the Alps. His elevation, I forget, like 5,000 feet or something like that, right? So he has a farm that he inherited from his dad in the Alps. And what these guys were growing back in the day was basically conifer trees, right? On the side of the mountain, you can't have a farm on the side of the mountain that doesn't grow anything other than conifer trees because only the guys down in the valley can have proper farms that grow proper things because you can't do it. So anyway, right? So he is a child and his dad gives him this little thing and he's learning all about nature and he's observing and he's growing these things and doing this stuff. And eventually he grows up and he inherits his father's farm and he goes to farm school and they teach him and tell him all these things with all this you know stupid empire ways of how to do stuff and he goes and he diligently tries it and he fails right and everything's dying on his farm and it's just not working out and he gets frustrated enough that he goes back to observing nature and the things that he learned when he was a child by just being out there and growing little things and seeing what would happen 
And sure enough, this guy over the years, he develops his own system, which is basically the idea of permaculture without knowing that term, because that was coined and developed over in Australia by a guy named Bill Mollison. Got to check him out. And so he's on the side of the Alps and he puts in these terraces, right? So he gets in his excavator and he puts in these, you know, basically level spots down the side of the mountain. And he just does all these things, observing, planting these things and throwing all these seeds and seeing what grows. And the idea is that he's just really connecting with nature, observing. He's creating he's creating the right opportunities for these plants to flourish. Right. And now he has this ridiculously abundant landscape on the side of the Alps that he grows citrus in. Right. So this guy is literally growing citrus on the side of the Alps where they get like multiple feet of snow in the wintertime. And these trees are growing there and they grow every year based on the microclimates that he's created, right? So he's able to observe nature well enough and do the things that he does to create the appropriate conditions for these plants to grow, that he's literally growing a plant that you would never suspect to be able to grow in the in the mountains and that's only and that's just one thing like the the, the things that he's growing there is just absolutely mind-boggling what he's doing there so he's got a book called Sepp Holzer's Permaculture he's an Austrian guy doesn't speak any English you know but of course they translated it and man it's just so good like at every sentence, I'm like, oh, yes, that's, you know, so good, so good. It's just so much uh, information density and the quality of it is just unbelievable, this guy. And, you know, go back, go back a little bit farther and you got this guy, Victor Schauberger, another Austrian guy from around the Second World War. And he's working with living energies, right? So he's observing nature. He's this, you know, forester and he's out in these epic forests and the in the Alps back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, before they cut them all down, right? You can only imagine what that was like and out there observing everything, right? And so he's really working with water and the life-giving principles of water and anyway, a couple of guys, if you want to check out some really awesome stuff from some old guys who were, you know, living in the old country, if you will, just observing nature and applying techniques that they observed to create total life fostering environments, basically, right? Well, they, they still have human beings where the masters of the universe live there in Switzerland. As a matter of fact, uh, most of the country or big parts of the country just rolled out to fight off 5G. You know why? Because there's not a lot of sheep living there. You know why? Because... One of the big things they make there is cheese. They have cows everywhere, and a lot of that cheese is alive, and a lot of their food supply is exactly what you're talking yeah. about. It's not pasteurized. It's not fertilized. It's not all these things. So you can go, and anyone who doesn't believe me, go look at pictures of people from Switzerland. Look at how healthy they look. It's a bit like going back, which I've told people to do so many times. You want to know how far we've we've dropped in the United States? Go back and look at pictures and movies from the 70s. If you look at one thing, look at the amount of hair on people. Some of those women have so much hair that you're convinced they're wearing a wig. That's not the case. They were healthier. They were not so inundated with all these man-made things. And that's really what we're getting at here. And it does not surprise me because I saw other guys using the heat from the ground 
up in Wisconsin, I believe it is, to grow something like avocados in a climate that that shouldn't be able to happen. So it goes to show what we're talking about is basically coming back into sync with nature. But have you, and I I kind of hesitate to ask this because I'll just say it, don't go out and harvest mushrooms. You can die, all right? And there are mushrooms that look so close together. One you can eat, one will drop you dead. Just don't do it unless you're trained. But do you have any experience with mushrooms, Simon? Uh, super limited. Like you say, it's a whole nother field of study. I mean, I can, you know, identify four or five that I'll go out there, you know, and I might pick if I definitely see it at the appropriate time, but, uh, no, not really. Uh, the plants for me right now is what's calling me. I mean, mushrooms is on the list one day, you know, I'll go and learn more about it, but, um, I mean, there's just so much to learn these days, right? You know, it all comes back to this idea of the industrialization and the idea that man's got to harness nature. It's the other way around, man. Nature's got to show you the way you've got, you know, what's a good example of this? Um, I can use, well, kind of a plant. Mushroom's not really wholly a plant, is it? But kind of a plant. And another thing that we're told is pollution. Whenever you see an oil spill, the authorities would have you believe that this huge devastation has happened, that the world has been poisoned, and this foreign element, it's nonsense. That oil came out of nature. You could almost probably consider it as the blood of the earth or something like that. Yes. That that, that maybe falls short. But my point is, is no matter how bad the oil spill, which, by the way, is usually caused by a ship pouring it into the water, not, not the earth. But my point is you go back there in three decades, it's as it ever was, but here's the thing. It was demonstrated during one of the recent oil spills, maybe not recent, a couple decades ago, that if you took those oyster mushrooms, everyone's familiar with and put it on the oil, it would actually completely clean the oil, absorb it, digest it, whole deal. But here's the kicker. You could eat the damn oyster mushrooms after they'd processed the oil from everywhere. And that tells you things that can't, you know, if you poured Roundup on the ground and did that with an oyster musher, is anyone going to eat that oyster musher? Not, not, not a prayer. And if you did, you're probably headed for the sick house. Um, my point being is we need to reevaluate all these things we've been told. And unfortunately, common sense doesn't get you all the way there. How are you going to use common sense to determine whether or not oil is a pollutant? But it's the same thing with forest fires. Through my whole young life, a forest fire was portrayed as devastation, ruin, and destruction. The truth of it is, is that it's renewal of nature. That's the truth. Unfortunately, a lot of the forest fires are caused by human beings. The point is, they now know in Yosemite when a forest fire happens, if they don't let it burn in around those big trees, the new sequoias will not be birthed because they require the fire. And by the way, those big trees are fireproof to some degree. So all these things that we've been told in the past uh, need reevaluation. And the best way to do it is to go out into nature. But if I was to ask you, Simon, are there two or three plants besides the dandelion, which you regularly use? And if so, what do you use them for? Well, let's talk about uh, garlic mustard. Another one of my favorites to talk a little bit about because it has such a uh, hate on in in the naturalist world, uh, especially it's in the mostly in the eastern United States, Canada. I would say uh, it's classified as invasive, and it's you know certainly spreads really well and is certainly taking over some places. So this plant, the whole thing, you can use it. 
Um, there's the, you know, the leaves, the flowers, the stem and the roots, again, different parts of the plant, different times of the year grows super abundantly. So this plant is, uh, that's it, you know, invasive basically means grows really well. in uh, in my ideas of them these days, here it is grows all over the place. It's easily one of the first early spring greens, very, very early. It might be the earliest spring green that I was nibbling on this year in that there's like snow is still around and this thing is is uh, starting to shoot up. So that's super awesome. When you're right at the end of winter and just getting into springtime, here's this, you know, life force that you can go out and pick right away. And the tastes of this plant, maybe we can get into this a little bit later, but this plant has this real pungency and bitterness, right? So pungency is like spice, right? You can think of cayenne pepper is kind of the ultimate in pungency, right? And bitterness. So these are two very activating tastes. So they really get that digestion going and they really help with cleansing, right? And so after winter, here we are, we're all stagnant, you know, in in the old days, for sure, you know, we didn't have access to greenery and all that stuff. So our bodies, uh, you know, they're not they're not uh, in peak performance after the winter, you could say. Right. And so here's this uh, plant presenting itself. And it has these particular tastes that are really great to just really get things moving in the body again, as well as being really quite nutritious. Right. So I'll really, really enjoy that as a very early spring green, very quite nice and tasty in its name, garlic mustard, right? Sounds good. Got some garlickiness to it, a little bit of mustardiness. You can make all kinds of stuff. A really great one is a garlic mustard pesto, right? You know, so you get a bunch of this stuff, collect it up, bust it up with, uh, you know, other pesto type ingredients, and it comes out really quite tasty. You can freeze it so you have it for later um, type of a thing, right? So there's a really great plant. The garlic mustard is pointed out as being one of the oldest species of spices used in Europe. Mm -hmm. The claim is, is that it was brought here in the 1800. It comes from Europe, Western Central Asia, Morocco, Iberia, the British Isles, Scandinavia, all these other places, Pakistan, Xinjiang, and China. But here's the thing. In one part of Wikipedia, they state flat out that it's one of the oldest known spices. So that's a benefit to human beings, right? But if you go down under the North American part, it claims that it is poisonous to all the animals and insects and everything here. And they're desperately searching. See, what's wrong with this picture? If human beings can eat this, then how can it be that there aren't other you know, I understand it's not naturally from here and that it probably is invasive, but you can already see what's going on here. And I was actually, I looked it up really quickly to see if anyone, you know, if I could find places where people are using it. Pretty much according to Wikipedia, they need to kill it in any way they can. Yeah, you got it, right? And, you know, again, what the heck's that all about, right? Well, that's, you know, that's this misconception that we're under that's being, uh, again, that whole social engineering thing of, we know better than nature, right? Which is really an overarching theme in the uh, you know technocracy, if you will, right? Technology is better than nature, right? We don't need nature. We we know better. We'll do it this way. We'll create our own genetically modified plants and grow them in greenhouses under false conditions and all of these things, right? Anything that's going on outside, we'll kill it, basically, right? So here's garlic mustard. 
yeah, you know, you just read all those things, really interesting, right? Been used for thousands of years all over the world as a spice. And therefore that means it's a food because you're eating it. And then our ancestors bring it over here, obviously, because it's a really great plant that they want to bring with them and they're going to a foreign land and they don't know what they're going to come across over there. So why wouldn't you bring your favorite plant that you like to eat with you, right? Medicinal too, according to that. Well, that's it. Well, again, like I mentioned earlier, that scale of food or medicine, well, is it, is it one or the other? No, it's both, right? And, and like I mentioned with the tastes, again, this is a real, you know, stimulating the digestion, you know, again, great for the liver, great to help you digest heavy foods, really going to stimulate, get that stuff moving along, right? So now here it is, and it's uh, escaped from our gardens, and it, you know, spreads really well, and it grows in a lot of different places. And so one of the main things that people are upset about with this plant is that it's it's uh, growing as an as an understory plant in in these forests, right? So we already talked about how these forests we're noticing are really degraded, right? They're no longer anything like forests used to be. They're really looking pretty sad out there these days. I don't know if you can even really call it a forest a lot of the places these days, right? And so sure enough, here comes garlic mustard, and now it's growing prolifically under these, you know, forests, so-called now, and displacing um, the so-called native plants, right? Okay, well, so on a, you know, on a just quick first glance, humans know better perspective. It's like, oh my God, now we're losing our native plants. This terrible weed has come in here and is displacing everything. But if you shift your lens of perception and look a little deeper and come in with a questioning, wondering mind of what is happening here. Why is this plant growing so prolifically under here? Well, maybe a different, uh, you know, maybe you come to different conclusions, right? Well, maybe these forests are no longer suitable for these native plants to grow there, right? We've come in here and you know, created all of this disturbance. This forest is looking really sad. There's nothing, you know. Again, like right at you know, t- you know, fifty feet over there is a cornfield being sprayed with Roundup, and here I am in this so-called forest, expecting to see these pristine native plants growing here. But instead, I see garlic mustard, and now I'm angry because it supposedly displacing these native plants. Well. I don't think those native plants can grow there anymore. They're no the 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 conditions are no longer suitable for those plants to flourish and so nature needs to intervene and says, "Okay, well, I can't grow my nice native plants that I've grown here for a thousand years. Now this garlic mustard is going to come in here and take over this space." Now, you saw that part on uh, Wikipedia where somewhere it says it's poisonous. Well, I'm telling you right now, I'm still alive and I've been eating this for quite some time and it hasn't poisoned me, right? Okay, so there's one thing. People have used it for thousands of years as a spice was another example in Wikipedia. It labeled it as both a food and medicinal, but on the tail of what you said, I would point out a thing that um, alchemy teaches us. When the native plants are having a tough time because of what human beings have done, It does not take that long before, if it's left alone, it will repair itself. Right. Um, And and so I have mixed feelings about the invasive species things. Um, The the main problem is, is that usually they get here because someone wants a pretty plant in their backyard. And I wanted to bring up the Phragmites because that's a big issue. 
and San Diego. I used to grow a lot of bamboo in San Diego, and Phragmites is a running rhizome, as is the running style of bamboo. And as I was into bamboo big at one point, I used to advise people, do not plant running bamboo in San Diego. And if you really are gonna, you better have a rhizome barrier. The other kind is clumping. But the problem with both of those bamboos for California is bamboo requires water. The one thing California does not have is water. But let's get back to the Phragmites. Were you going to introduce that you can eat Phragmites or there's other things (laughs) that can be done with it? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Just let me really quick just finish that quick note on garlic mustard. So, So people really don't know what it's doing, right? Okay, so they think it's doing something bad. I think and I've read from other people's perspectives who have more, you know, inquiring type minds that garlic mustard is rehabilitating that soil underneath those trees so that in the future, if we get to a point where we can leave nature alone and let it do its thing, I suspect that garlic mustard would uh, go away after a number of years when that soil is suitable enough for those native plants to come back there. It's an interesting thing to think about. And um, and just one more point on the garlic mustard. Here is nature presenting this super abundant, super nutritious green to all of us in a time where we are all malnourished, right? And right now we're getting angry at it. Well, that doesn't seem quite right. Nature is providing us with a high quality superfood in major abundance right in our backyards and we are complaining of malnutrition right so just something to think about on on those notes in in the abundance of such a plant with its ability to heal and nourish us now on to phragmites this is another of these invasive plants this one could potentially be more invasive and um, a little and more intense right so Phragmites, uh, we'll try to describe a little for people, is that, is that reed that you see in the ditches growing everywhere, especially around agricultural centers. So people, that's People mistake really that for bamboo all the time. It looks kind sure. of like a cane, yeah. That's right. And, and, and in the wintertime when the greenery dies back, it's those, yeah, like beige brown stalks that are really tall with the like fluffy, uh, fluffy grassy head on top that blows in the wind, right? So here's this plant, right? Again, grows like crazy, grows in in wetlands, mostly in like the ditches and so on, right? So what I learned about this plant is that this is one of the top plants for cleaning out toxins and heavy metals out of the soil and the water, right? Imagine that. So here's this plant growing in the ditches next. So in the ditch between the highway and the field, the the corn field, right? So on one side, you got your car pollution. On your other side, you have your Roundup, right? And right in the middle, you have Phragmites, okay? So what used to grow in these ditches? Well, all kinds of things, right? All kinds of things, nettles and asparagus and all sorts of stuff, right? Now, nothing basically grows there other than Phragmites. Well, again, that idea you know, I don't think that ground is suitable for nettles and uh, anything else to grow there. And so nature has decided that, okay, well, humans, you guys messed this up. To you've, you've taken this particular landscape to such an extreme that I now need to step in with my most extreme measures. And that is this, you know, basically monocrop of Phragmites. And so here's this plant 
super good at cleaning the water, right? And so basically it seems like it can take these heavy metals into its physical structure and make them inert almost, or like it removes them from the soil and keeps them in such a state that they're no longer available for the other plants, right? Sequestered. Yeah, it's called sequestered. Yeah, there you go. Excellent. Perfect word. And now that space is a little bit cleaner because of it, right? And so again, I wonder if we all went away and stopped polluting and just left that Phragmites to its own devices, how long would it be there? You know, would it just keep on growing prolifically forever and take over all the wetlands? Well, I kind of doubt it. And as that plant cleans the water and the soil on the earth, well, as it happens from my research, it seems as though it does the exact same thing inside our bodies. Now we go back to that idea of, you know, where are you harvesting a thing? You know, are you going to harvest the Phragmites between the highway and the Monsanto field? I don't think so. But if you were to get some Phragmites from a, you know, nicer, cleaner spot or grow some yourself, there's some real potential there for making some serious medicines to clean out heavy metals out of our bodies, I suspect. Well, it's an interesting idea that you're putting forward. I'd never truly thought about it in that way because Phragmites in San Diego was a big deal. As you know, it likes water. So the places it grows ends up being a problem for those who are dealing with the infrastructure. But here's the bigger kind of tell about Phragmites. And by the way, I've got a lozenge. If people hear my teeth clicking or something, I apologize. I got a scratchy throat. The Phragmites would take over massive fields And since it's a running rhizome, like a running bamboo, it's in the grass family, Phragmites is. I think it's a rundinacea, actually, if I remember correctly. Uh, It will get four or five feet thick to the point where really digging it up is not, it's like rebar. That's how tough the roots are. So the way they were doing it was spraying Roundup. I kid you not, on fields and fields and fields of this. And what happened is they were getting so many workers injured. And not only that, it was reported that as they got the heavy equipment to try to pry up the rhizome mass, it was so hot after they'd sprayed it that people could get burned. And I just thought, my God, what's worse, a field full of Phragmites or what you guys are doing? But it is, in fact, an interesting idea to me because I know certainly that what you said is true. Bamboo does the same thing. Uh, We did tests on bamboo and urine. And I determined that a running bamboo could become its own porta potty. Uh, People could pee on it all day. And if it was like something like a Vivax or one of these bamboos, you can almost watch grow when it sprouts. It would process the urine so quickly as to be a sewage system. And I wanted to put these things into effect uh, when I was involved with it. But unfortunately, there's always politics wherever you go. As a matter of fact, the San Diego Zoo kept trying to get me on board with what they were doing. And unfortunately, I appreciate the San Diego Zoo's plant collection, but I don't appreciate the slavery to the animals. Um, Some of the big cats there have no business being locked in those cages. It's terrible. My point here is I like your idea that maybe this is just nature's response to a bad situation. I wonder. I wonder indeed. Yeah. And you know, that's another, you know, if we're talking about social engineering stuff here on and off, uh, that whole idea of people who are really fight, you know, there are certain groups of people, yeah, this whole group think idea, not going to get into it, the native plant people, right? 
And it's like, yeah, native plants and only native plants. We love native plants and everything else we, we don't like because native plants are the best. And yes, native plants are great. And they, <clears throat> there's so much about native plants that we can get into and the awesomeness and the intelligence that they hold within their life force of, you know, having grown in this particular place for who knows how long, right? And it is sad that they're getting displaced and we're losing them. And, and we should all put in effort to try and preserve these and grow them as much as we can because there's so much we don't know about them. When you sign up to a group think and that group think is manipulated by a certain element of empire, say, then you're, you're parroting you're parroting something that that aren't your thoughts and and you're not thinking for yourself right and so one of the things that's put forward is that idea of spraying them right and so oh here's invasive plants we need to get rid of them so the native plants can grow back well i don't know how to get rid of them and other but oh look monsanto is going to sponsor us getting rid of these native plants and they're going to provide all the roundup we need for free yeah, that's awesome. Oh, wait a second. You know, now we're spraying Roundup everywhere. So how does that work, right? I can relate to so much of this. Um, when I was young in the East County of San Diego, I lived outside in the hills in nature. And one of the things we did was to test our manlyhood when we were at a, at a point of being male and young and doing stupid things. Who could catch a rattlesnake with their bare hands? That was the <laughs> point. That was how involved we were in nature and, you know, boys will be boys, I guess. Luckily, all the boys that I grew up with, save one, are still alive. Shouldn't be, probably. But my wife and I remember to this day, as we drove from downtown San Diego out towards East County, there used to be an old steel bridge and there was a waterway called Sweetwater. And that tells you something about the indigenous people who named it. To, to call a thing Sweetwater has pretty important ideas behind it. There's a smell in the evening and in the early night when you drive through there that is unmistakable and to this day when i smell that smell it feels like your home but years later when we'd gone back i was down there hiking around that old steel bridge which is no longer used by traffic anymore and i realized all the invasive species that had come in the waterway now we'd learn things as as children if there was crawdads in the water we were told we could drink that water and we did and i never caught any of these supposed diseases from all the cattle and deer and a poop and all the things that are supposed to be. Well, I don't think I'd do it today. But the point was when back in the 60s and 70s, if you could catch crawdads in the water, the chances were you could drink that water. And we lived by that. We did those things. But now what we see is the East County out there has become a rich place for big, rich homes. And so the egos come with it and all the ornamental plants. And what's happened is in Santa Ana's and high winds and other things, these plants have propagated into streams and other places. And now you find these big ornamental plants choking out other plants. And it changed the smell of the place. I noticed right away, it's still there, just not to the same level it once was. And so, you know, this is a double-edged sword. When we're yeah. talking about invasive species, why are they there? Well, they're mostly there because of ego. That's why they're there. Because someone wanted a beautiful plant in their yard or someone else didn't want to dispose of a plant. So they chucked it out their window. Phragmites is wholly that. And in a place like where I grew up, it's chaparral. It's desert, basically. It's high desert. 
And when these plants come in on the waterways, they really do change the environment. And in changing the environment, they change the plants. But I'm with you all day long. It's one thing to go out there with a machete and try to remove some of them. It is entirely another thing to try to bioengineer them out in some way, which is just destructive. I would like to hear from Simon about his business and his reach with the public and all that, and to hear the difference as time has gone by of what he sees, especially since he has been trying to do a public image kind of thing for the work that he's doing. Yeah, right on. Thanks. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, this, all, this all sort of stemmed from me being sick, if you will, right? So, you know, as a teenager, they diagnosed me with so-called autoimmune condition, right? Which basically means a mystery and they don't know anything about it, but it's uh, something's happening to my body, right? And so it's a degenerative type thing. And, you know, time goes on and eventually I needed a liver transplant. And so I was just a kid, didn't know anything, you know, and okay, sure. Science, modern science will fix me up. That was just, okay, there I go. Going to have a liver transplant. That all happened. It was great. Super miracle of modern science. And then after that, I had another condition of my of my bowels, right? And so it was like, now I no longer had this sort of light at the end of the tunnel to say, oh, you know, science will fix you up. You'll be all good. Now it was kind of like, okay, well, now you're on your own because, you know, we don't really have an answer to this. There's some drugs, you know, some are stronger than others and some will, you know, reduce your symptoms better than others, but you don't want to be on those very long. And so then I'd started to learn about things and I was like, well, what can I do? And, you know, just started looking into everything and, you know, ultimately everything leads to nature if you really start to look for answers. And yeah, so I just really got into all that and I had all kinds of time on my hands to be able to learn all these things, which is, you know, super fortunate. Most people don't have. And uh, it, it just was really empowering and I was learning so many things. And then at the same time, it was like, well, you know, we need to make some money in the world, right? We live where we are and it is what it is. And uh, so we were so we were living up and wanted to do a little farmer's market. And my wife was the one who really got into the herbs to start with. And then she was making these little teas and it was like, okay, well, let's blend up some, you know, basic common herbs into some basic tea formulas that can you know, show some people what herbs can do, right? And so that's what we did. And so we just get some herbs and we blend them up and it's really easy and it's a basic little tea thing. And, you know, it's really my wife who does all that stuff. I did sort of, you know, get out there and talk to people, but so there it is, right? And so now we're doing that, but that's just an introduction into a whole lifestyle, right? It's like, here's a little blend of a few herbs, you know, drink this tea, try it out. Does it help your digestion? Oh yeah, you're going to feel better. Okay, great. Now go and look at the back of the package, see what's in there and learn about those herbs, right? And we're really trying to focus on the herbs that you can grow in your backyard, right? So, you know, you got a digestive issue. You're going to try out my tummy tamer tea. You're going to find that it really works. You're going to look at the back and you're going to say, oh, chamomile, fennel, marshmallow root and calendula. You look those things up. Oh, geez, I can grow all those in my backyard, right? And then we get into this whole idea, like I was talking about earlier, the wild forest gardening, and you start to grow all these things. And it turns into this whole empowering people to take charge of their own well-being and to connect with nature and to, you know, see the power of plants, right? I'd say, you know, herbs are here to help, right? My funny little tagline. And so as the years go on, like, 
I'm noticing big shifts, right? People are really coming around. Like we lived in the city for a number of years and, um, you know, so we were doing this wild forest gardening there and, you know, we saw both sides. So of course, you know, we got some neighbors and they called the bylaw cause we're growing weeds. Right. And, you know, so we had to deal with all that and the bylaw came and, you know, I was out there and I, showed them everything and told them this and told them that and, you know, went right into getting into all the details about their bylaw description. And as it turns out, weeds are classified as these on the noxious weed list, right? Well, so what the heck is, uh, you know, what the heck is a noxious weed, right? And so if you go into the definition of noxious, I just want to read really quickly here. Noxious, hurtful, harmful, baneful, destructive, unwholesome, so what the heck is that, right? You're going to call certain plants by those names, right? And Crow, you mentioned before about the milkweed being that plant was on that list, milkweed on the noxious weed list, just because it grows well in farmer's fields kind of a thing, right? So anyway, so I'm growing a bunch of these plants and, you know, it looks like a big pile of weeds, but really it's all kinds of food and medicine I'm growing. So we were having people in there doing tours. I was telling them about it. People were loving it. So, you know, so anyway, I got the whole city involved and counselors came and they had to get their local naturalist expert out to come and identify if I was actually growing any of the noxious weeds. And, you know, sure enough, I grew, was growing a couple of, you know, two plants, two particular thistles were listed on this so-called noxious weed plant list. And so I was able, you know, but I went in and I told them all about how I'm using these and this is what I'm doing with them. And But, you know, but wait, oh, okay. are, are those thistles native? No, they're not, not native. So, right. And then, so, all right, so fine. Okay. You can grow that one thistle there, but you know, it was like a power struggle kind of, it's like, okay, but you have to cut down this other thistle, you know, the bull thistle, which is this big, really prickly, really tall thistle. And so, yeah, okay, fine. So I get like a week to cut it down and get rid of it. And so anyway, I just go, my wife goes back there and she just snips it down so that it just blends in with everything else. It's not really tall anymore. Right. And so he comes by and can't distinguish it. And then it's all good kind of a thing. Right. So, <laughs> you know, and, and, and so I'm out there doing plant walks and things. Right. And I, you know, I just get people out and I go to some green space in the city, some random little place in the park, maybe, or something, and, you know, get a few people together and go out and walk around. And, and like, they just, most people don't, most people just don't know about this, right? And once I start saying that, oh, look, here's 10 plants growing on the edge of this parking lot that we just parked on that you can you can use, right? And look, we'll walk over here and we'll find them where they're not right next to the parking lot. And, uh, you know, and then I can tell you all about why they're so good. And people were, they're really eating this stuff up, right? I mean, so many people are being sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? They want something. They want to connect with nature. They want to just really do something real, right? It's just so much falseness out there. And so really working with these plants, it's just been really, really awesome. And it just keeps on going. And, you know, listening to you guys now, I've, you know, delving into the world of spagyrics, right? It's like taking all of this to a whole nother level kind of a thing, right? You're really upping the potency of a lot of these plants. So really what I'm all about is trying to just bring this awareness to people's minds and show them that there is another way and that, you know, nature is here for us. And we just need to engage a little bit and just to connect with nature, right? And just use your senses, different senses, you know, taste and smell and touch and sight and connect with the plants. And that's 
just basically what I'm trying to do all the while working with my own personal health conditions. Like I'm dealing with some pretty serious, heavy duty stuff. Right. And so a lot of the time I'm really just retreating and especially this last year, it's been heavy duty for me. And so I've really just sort of retreated and been off the grid, you know, just sort of looking after myself and learning, doing my own things while my wife, you know, she's really the businesswoman and puts my name on it and I go out and say the stuff, but she does all the work kind of thing. Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's all just getting the word out there and presenting a lifestyle, right? Cause that's it at the end of the day too, is that it's a lifestyle and it's a practice. And these are things that you cultivate, right? It's not just a quick, easy thing. This needs to be developed and it's a you know, it's a seed to be grown, right? Be careful of the, you know, thought seeds you plant in the garden of your mind there. I think that's a funkadelic line. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's the whole idea, right? And how do we cultivate these seeds of goodness within our lives in a lifestyle type of a way that is life promoting, right? You know, whatever situation we find ourselves in, um, nature is here for us. You know, even if you're in you know, downtown Manhattan, you know, I, I mean, I've never been there, but from the movies, it's awful lot of concrete, but I'm sure as soon as you go down one of those little back alleys or something, you're bound to find some weeds growing out of the concrete somewhere. And, you know, even if you don't go to those weeds and you don't eat them, you know, I wonder what would happen if you just went and you sat there and you touched it and smelled it and felt it and looked at it and wondered about it for a while. You know, it's, uh, there's some powerful stuff there and, you know, there's a lot more to nature than, um, you know, we're led to believe right off the start, right. We really don't know, learn any of this stuff in school or anything like that. Right. So it is a path that, um, needs to be sought out, right. It's not, usually one that you just we're not taught this by default right we need to go our own way if you will and uh, nature is here to help us with that and you know with our little business here we're really just trying to show people right you know that's the whole idea of you know we're, we're putting our faces out there and we're putting a face on it and you know with my business it's called Simon Steeps, right? And, you know, it's a fun little alliteration. And we got my face on it. And, you know, it's a fun little thing. Down in the city, you know, people got to know who I was. And you could see me. And it was like, oh, hey, you're the tea guy. And and then they would ask me about stuff, right? And it was, it was just, it's like a way of generating conversation and interest so that people want to talk to me. And then I can, you know, maybe plant a little seed of thought in their in their mind, right? So that they can go and cultivate these ideas, which they may never have considered before until they recognize my face and, and talk to me for five minutes on the street kind of a thing, right? So here we are, we're all doing what we can. We're living in a crazy world and nature is the only thing that's real. And we need to get back to nature as best we can, right? So we're just trying to put the word out there and there's so much to it that I've, and I've been super fortunate relatively, you know, with uh, different ways of looking at things, you know, a health condition, you can get angry at it and you can be frustrated. And, you know, I could sit here and feel sorry for myself and just lie in bed and watch TV all day, but you know, to what end, right. Or I could, you know, get up in the morning and, you know, read my book on uh, spagyrics and learn about permaculture and 
go outside and, you know, talk to somebody and say some stuff, right? So that's it sort of at the end of the day. Well, it's a telling thing when people define plants that grow in our world as noxious. Uh, Those two ideas don't go together in my mind. And I suppose we could find things uh, in the plant kingdom that might be described as noxious. But the whole point is they're designed to do that. So almost on the face of it, the word noxious doesn't fit. There's so few of those plants. Just as a, just as a really quick example, the northeastern United States, southern Ontario, there's like over 2,000 different kinds of plants, say, that grow there. And as far as like poisonous ones that might hurt you, there's like 1% to 2%, right? So we're talking like a very small number of plants relatively in the number of plants that grow in a particular area that uh, may hurt you if you ingest them. You know, so if you learn those plants really well and you know damn well what, uh, you know, poison ivy looks like and, uh, you know, poison water hemlock, you're pretty good from there. Like, you you know, you're off to a really good start because there's a, not really that many plants that can hurt you. And um, that's one of the big, uh, you know, sort of fear porn ideas is that uh, there's wild, there's poison plants everywhere and you're bound to pick one and it's going to kill you kind of a thing. Right. That whole uh what was that movie lost in the wild or something where the guy dies because supposedly ate a poison plant well uh in one of the books i have samuel thayer i think it's called nature's garden he goes in there it's all about foraging and he totally rips that apart and you know he's a wild food expert and he rips that movie and that book apart and uh really breaks it down really nicely to say that that guy died of starvation there was no way that he misidentified the plant and that movie was just basically made to scare people away from wild plants in his opinion really neat Pl- idea. plenty of fear, plenty of fear porn to be had um even the idea that you would call a plant noxious. i'll tell you another thing in, in san diego uh a lot of the oak and by the way all the people who make fun of the older ways when you walk into an old growth oak forest you feel the change in being <laughs> it's not quite what i would describe as scary it's not quite what i would describe as dark but the whole essence of your day changes the moment you go in that grove. Same thing with an old growth olive grove, but yeah. in these old in these old growth oak groves, there's poison oak a lot. And so people would classify that as noxious. The truth is, is that oak, all that poison oak in there, so many prey animals use that to hide from coyotes and other things that might get them. But Jason, we're about to the top of the hour. Anything you want to add before we get Simon's contact information? Well, I'm glad to hear that Simon was able to do some things to help himself, and I want that to be an example for others out there that you don't necessarily have to turn to pharmaceuticals to help your medical conditions. They might not help sometimes, but there are alternatives, and it looks like Simon has found some. It's a balance. It's a balance. It's not one or the other. This is a big uh, false dichotomy that's uh, there as well in this world, is one or the other. It's both, you know. And in my world, that's especially true. Like, I... I would be dead without pharmaceuticals, and I would also be dead without plants, in my opinion. You know, it's funny. I'm reading Timaeus by Plato. <laughs> There's a quote I was almost going to start recycling, which is a little too far over the line for this conversation. But it said you should pretty much stay away from medicines if you're sick because they might kill you. That's That was a <laughs> quote from Plato. I don't exactly recognize it. But anyhow, guys, that does bring us yeah. to the top of the second hour uh, Simon, can you tell folks where they can find you? 
Yep, you can check me out, uh, simonsteeps.com. That's S-I-M-O-N-S-T-E-E-P-S.com. That's our little website. My wife basically does all that. There's some herbal teas on there you can buy and try out. Uh, I'm going to get this uh, little wild nutrition weed chart on there that you can download and basically gives you like 12 of my favorite weeds and um, gives a whole bunch of information about them. And I mean, that's just our platform. We're really small time and, you know, low key and we're just doing our little part in the world and living in our corner. And, you know, if you want to reach out, I love to talk. I'm happy to speak on all of these things and can keep on going for days kind of thing because there's so much out there. And yeah, check it out. See what you think. Get out there, try some herbs, grow some plants, be out in nature. It's all good stuff in that sense. All right. Well, that brings us to the top of the second hour here. Um, I would almost consider the idea that the word weeds is almost like the corporatization of certain plants in the same way we've seen the corporatization of people. After all, if it's made in nature, it's not discardable. It's doing something somewhere in this world. It's all there is to it would not be here if there was no use for it. And if you can demonstrate human beings can eat it or just animals can eat it, then that's a pretty damn important use, particularly in times where we are living on a thread. Uh, So many things we have no faith in anymore. How long will it be before we don't have faith in whether our supermarket will be stocked or will things start to go the other way? It's all about mindset. Anyhow, that does bring us to the top of the hour. We hope you'll join us all next week at crow777radio.com. Cheers. Thank you.